The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting edition of True Crime on Easy Street. After last week, whew. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a two-parter, so this get ready. A, it's a tough one. I think that Scott is just getting started with this episode. I mean, with this person. What do you mean? Um, you know, you just kind of teased us a little bit last ah, week. And, yes. and I think it's going to get amped up by the time Katie kicks in her part of the story. I'm excited, but also terrified. Do you not know the details of this story? I knew some of them, but not obviously what we've I don't think been able I know to dig up. all of them. Yeah. But I'm excited to learn a little more and a little bit terrified. But uh, my name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I'm a mediocre journalist. And I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. And um, well, don't we have a few shout outs we before we one actually ju- dive into this? That I know of. Okay, I, I have one. Okay, you want to <clears> go first? Sure. On um, Apple Podcasts, we have a five star rating t- entitled Love It. Oh, yay, good. And it says, thank you for your pod. How many exclamation points? None. It just says- Well, that's half-assed. Thank you for your pod. All right. Well, we appreciate the five-star review. And it's from 121664. So it's like BB-8 or- Should we just call that R2-D2? One, two for short. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they go by one, two, or if they go by six, four. So well, they're either number one or number two. If they I don't... leave every one of their reviews just like that one that they left for us, but we're still grateful. I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. One, two, one, six, six, four. <laughs> we appreciate that, and we appreciate you. And thank you for the review. Yeah. You know what you think? You say thank you for your, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for being you, for being you, and listening to us. That's right. Do you have a shout out? Uh, Laura Barrett, an old friend of mine. Okay. She texted me over the weekend. I shared it with you guys. She got a kick out of some of the comments that we were making during the Lake Waco episode. She thought it was very funny that we were arguing about the Indiana Jones movie. Did we, did we argue about that in the Lake well, Waco? Well, we, we discussed it, and you thought it was a better movie than I did. <laughs> and at some point- And we talked about that for Lake Waco. I, I don't remember it. God, I don't either. Because I was pretty drunk then. <laughs> so- <laughs> Don't remember a lot. How? Um, I, I, you but know I'm what? sober today. I had to work at the office until just now, so I came over. I'm stone cold sober. Let's see how this goes. Everybody, uh, let us know what you think. Do you, yeah. do you prefer Scott? Should I drink more or less? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's that's the question of the day. I know what my doctor would say. What? What he has said less. and you have ignored. That is true. Uh, <laughs> I should mm, drink less. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's the way those doctors are, right? Yeah. yeah we don't, cautious. We don't like them. I know what I'm I just kidding. Like. We love our doctors. <laughs> yeah. We love them so. Um, getting a lot of positive response from our episode featuring Kevin Green and Jake Graves, our local experts. Surprisingly. Uh, mostly positive comments from them, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, I wanted to, uh, th- no, they had a great experience. I think we had a good time having them here. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have enough microphones, so we had, you know, we didn't get to hear from Katie a whole lot. And so I'm I'm sorry about that. She still participated. She ran the board and sat in, so. She yeah. did. Mm-hmm. She did. And, uh, but I just, I hate we couldn't hear her as well. Yeah, but that's well, okay. We're, we had a good time. Everybody was. Uh, we couldn't do, if she wasn't here. Well, it wouldn't have. Neither come, you nor I could have done that. It part. would not have aired. Too many buttons. <laughs> For me. I don't even, I don't even want to 
try. Yeah. I sat down earlier and I said, oh, my mic's not working. And I mean, that was literally the extent to my troubleshooting. Well, <laughs> I'm not on. It's not working. You pitched in in the only way you knew how. I did. <laughs> and of course, Katie did a couple of things there. And here I am. And you can hear working. me today. Yeah, and we're so. working. Okay. So that I think that's it. That's Those are all of our shout outs. That's everything that we need to do. Let's, all right. Good night. Let's <laughs> oh, you don't need everything. No, need no. L- let's hear it. I, I want to hear the conclusion of, of Edmund Kemper. Okay. Well, last week on part one of the Edmund Kemper slash co-ed killer uh, series episode, we told you a little bit about what happened to Ed Kemper up until the point he committed his first two co-ed murders. He mm-hmm. was convicted of killing his grandparents when he was 15. He spent five years at the Atascadero State Mental Hospital for the criminally insane, mm-hmm. it was called at the time. And then when he got out, they told him, don't go live with your mother, which he, of course, did right away. And, and she's the person who drives him, drove him to <clears throat> behave this way. I mean, uh, so he says. Yeah. Uh, and so he went to live with her anyway, and he picked up a couple of girls, and we mentioned their names last week before the show ended, Marianne Pesh and Anita Lucessa, both 18-year-old co-eds from Fresno State. He picked them up. They were never seen alive again. That's where we ended the show last mm. week. So just to recap, just a tick, we're in 1972 in California. Okay. The summer of love, the hippie generation is still going on. Hitchhiking was a normal part of what people did back then. That's how a lot of people got around. It wasn't yet the taboo thing to do that it became a lot because of Edmund Kemper III. Yes. I mean, he famously said in one interview, if he contributed anything to society, it was that he taught college girls not to hitchhike. Almost like he was proud of that. Yeah, sounds like it. But a lot of kids were running away from home back then. It was hard to get the police to pay any attention. If you're a, a, a parent who's worried about where your son or daughter is, most particularly your daughter, the cops didn't really want to hear about it. A lot of people were running away from homes all over the country, hitchhiking out to California to take part in this hippie movement. Mm-hmm. So the cops out in California were just, they threw up their hands and said, maybe they'll come back in a couple of days. Yeah. A lot of times they did. Sometimes they did not. Mm-hmm. So on May the 7th, 1972, 18-year-olds Marianne Pesh and Anita Lucessa were picked up by Ed Kemper. Pesh was a, she was an experienced hitchhiker. She had spent seven years of her childhood in Europe, had backpacked all over the continent. So she was very, uh, very astute at the job of getting around in someone else's car. Anita Lucessa was spending her first weekend away from home. I mean, she went home every weekend as a college student until May of 72. First time she'd ever hitchhiked. Uh, so Ed sees them on the side of the road and, and Kemper, I'm going to call him Kemper. If I call him Ed, I'm going to stop and do it all over again. <laughs> well, so. I, I think you can call him Ed. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, Cause they only, I'm Edmund, trying to stick and make it consistent throughout. Well, so the only Edmund, okay. Well, the only Edmund Kemper we're talking about in this episode is true. Is Last time we had Edmund to explain Kemper. that his father and grandfather both had the same. Yep. Name, and so. they're, we've, we've talked about them last week. So yeah, we're through with them. You, so if I say Ed or Kemper, you guys will know who I'm talking about. We right. all know. We got it. Okay. When he saw them on the side of the road, they were holding up a sign that said Stanford. And Ed said later that he knew that that was something that worked to his advantage when he got ready to stop and pick up somebody that he had in- intended to kill because it gave him a couple of seconds to come up with a story for why he might be headed in the same direction they were headed in. Makes sense. So he wanted to pick up people who were holding a sign when that was possible. He had determined 
without a doubt that he was going to kill his first victim this day when he left the house. I'm going to go kill somebody. And so these girls just happen to be at these the happen to be the two unfortunate wrong girls. place, wrong time. and. The uh, Pesh, being the experienced hitchhiker that she was, she didn't want to get in the car. Mm. But Ed figured out this thing to do where he would look at his watch, his wristwatch, and act like he was in a hurry, fidgety. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that worked to get them, okay, he's not worried about us. He's trying to get to where he's going. It'll be a short trip. We'll get straight there. No worries. He figured out that that worked, and he used it a lot. Okay. He gets the girls in the car. Pesh is in the back seat. Luchessa is in the front seat. And Ed is driving a 1969 Ford Galaxy. That's a big, huge boat of a car, but only has two doors. So once you're in the back seat of one of those big old cars from the 70s, you're in it. Mm -hmm. You can't you reach to, the door you handle. To... You got to lean up this big seat that weighs oh, as much yeah. as you do. You can't get out of the thing. No, Katie has no idea really what we're hard. talking about, but you and I remember I do. This. I remember this. Big old cars. Well, I mean, there are still two-door coupe cars. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> this was this was because the front seat was a big old bench Yes, just a seat. Yes, no console back, back then. No, no, no. It wasn't like you could dive in between the right. the passenger and the, the the front seat and the and the driver. Mm -hmm. You you had to go over the top. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, or and, get out and lean the seat forward and then get back in. Yeah, that feels yeah. claustrophobic. It would to me. It, it would today. I mean, yeah. I've <laughs> ridden in it before, but mm -hmm. but it would today for yeah, sure. For sure. So at some point, Kemper figures out that he is going to take them to a certain desolate location, but he not, he, he's not sure exactly how to get there. Even though he works for the highway department, he's still got to stop at a gas station and get a map and make sure that he's going in the right direction, which he does. He gets back into the car and he pulls a nine millimeter handgun on the girls, at which point, of course, they freak out and start to panic. So he keeps them calm by telling them that he's not going to harm them. He's suicidal and he just wants someone to talk to. Oh. He's got to find a nice, quiet place to do that. Okay. So that calms him down enough that he can get them to the place where he wants to go. He gets Luchessa out of the car, puts her in the trunk Ugh. at gunpoint. They're both pleading for their lives at this point. I'm sure. Pesh is handcuffed to the seatbelt in the back seat, mm -hmm. so she can't get out. Kemper puts Luchessa in the trunk. Then he goes back to the back seat of the car and he tries to, his intention is to smother these girls and then have sex with their dead bodies. And we talked about him having this all of this is, last, last episode. All of this is sexually driven for Ed Kemper. And, and remember, Edmund Kemper is how tall? He is 6'9", 280 pounds. He's a large man. Yes, and both of these girls weighed about 110 pounds apiece. Oh. So little, tiny, small girls. Yes. So Ed climbs into the back seat and after several attempts to smother Pesh, he then begins to stab her, and he eventually slits her throat. <sighs> he gets out of the car, opens the trunk, kills Luchessa the same way, violently. Mm -hmm. Ed says later, I killed them both with a knife. It was very messy, as you might imagine. Yeah. Ugh. And after he killed Marianne Pesh, he realizes, and this is a direct quote from him from one of his interviews, oh shit, I've done it, now I've got to kill the other one. Because one of the things that Ed learned when he was at Atascadero is all the idiot rapists that he talked to while he was there always left a witness somewhere. Mm -hmm. So Ed has learned a lot from his time in Atascadero. It wasn't how not to be a sociopath. No, it was, it was how, how to, to be, function in society yeah. and be a sociopath. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. pretty much what he learned. So he knew that he had to kill Luchessa as well. So he does that. She was stabbed repeatedly while in the trunk. And... Ed slams the trunk lid closed 
and suddenly is afraid that he has locked his keys in the trunk of the car. He panics, but he goes one more time. He goes through all of his pockets, finds his keys in his back pocket where he never places his keys. Mm-hmm. But that keep that in mind because he's going to do something similar further down the road. It's just something he gets nervous when he's committing after these it, crimes. After the crime has been committed. Yeah. Well, he just, he's blacked out. He, he's forgotten where he put the keys. Mm. You know, yeah. and, uh, one of the girls knocked off his wristwatch. He just happened to look down and see it, mm. or that might've been left on the side of the road, probably with blood on it, yeah. but it wasn't. He, he, he got past that. So he took their bodies back to his apartment decapitated them both and sexually assaulted their corpses before trying cannibalism for the first time. In that order? Yes. I I can't even. Okay, go ahead. So that is in May of 1972. The next month, Kemper has a motorcycle accident. Very badly breaks his left arm and he's left-handed, is Ed Kemper. He has a six-inch steel plate and six screws holding his arm together, 13 stitches on his head, and he's got a cast from the shoulder down. So he's just got a big L-shaped cast on his arm. He can't use his left hand. Keep that in mind as well. Okay, good. I haven't heard. Yeah, me too. Uh, Two months later, in August of 72, some hikers in the Loma Prieta Mountains found a head that turned out to be later Marianne Pesh. We don't know that yet. Mm Mm-hmm. We just know that we have a murderer who is driving around dismembering bodies. And just throwing them out. And throwing pieces out. Is he throwing them out or is he trying to hide them or stage them? Or is he just panicked and throwing them He's out? He's just trying to get just rid get of rid them. Of yeah. Okay. Four months later, after the, the head that turns out to be Marianne Pesh's head is found, Ed has got to kill again. He has, his, his desires have returned. Mm-hmm. He took some Polaroids of those girl's heads while he had them in his apartment and he would look at those pictures to keep himself from going out and killing someone else because he knew he had a problem he's trying not to do it he says later and so he takes the polaroids and that that satisfies his urges for a while but now we're into september and ed kemper's ready to kill someone again and his next victim is i'm going to spell it for you the first time just so that you guys understand why i'm saying this 15 year old girl her name is Aiko. Ku. Her first name is Aiko, A-I-K-O. Her last name is Ku, K-O-O. Okay. She is the daughter of a Latvian mother who is a university employee who had an affair with a South Korean professor. Okay. The professor wanted to have nothing to do with his daughter when she was born. Hmm. So not much of a relationship there, but, but Aiko was always interested in her Korean heritage. And her mother encouraged this. So by the time she was 15, she was a very uh, she was an expert at this traditional South Korean dance style and she danced and got paid for her performances all up and down the West Coast. In fact, the next weekend, she's supposed to go to St. Louis to dance at the World Trade Center Fair in her traditional South Korean garb that her mother hand makes for her. Mm-hmm. So she spends a lot of time at dance classes mm-hmm. okay. and she gets invited to go to a dance class in San Francisco, which is a little bit of a drive from Berkeley and they don't have a car. They're, they're not very wealthy. They live with her parents. So grandpa gives Aiko a dollar for the bus. So she's at the bus stop, but she gets antsy. She's afraid she's going to miss this very important dance class that she has in San Francisco. So she makes a sign 
that says San Francisco. Oh. Just about the time Ed Kemper comes driving by. No. Yeah. Her mother knew that she hitchhiked. She encouraged her not to. But she did anyway, and this was a particularly bad choice on September the 14th, 1972. Oh, Lord. So he gets Aiko into the car. He intentionally misses the off-ramp when they get to San Francisco, and then he tells her, you're not going to make your dance class tonight. She panics. He pulls out a, a pistol, shoves it into her ribs, tells her to calm down. And by the time he finds the spot where he wants to commit this crime, he's actually got her calmed down, and they're having a normal conversation again, Ed says later. They're laughing, and she's, I'm sure she's still a nervous wreck, hoping that this gun goes away. But Ed uses the same story again. I'm suicidal. I just want to pull over somewhere and talk. Good Lord. He is 6'9". Yeah. And how, how big is this girl? Uh, Aiko was uh, about 105 pounds. Five foot three you, and 105 pounds. Ed, do you really need a gun? Yeah. I mean, what a wimp. It was just to keep, Ed said later, it was just to keep them calm. Until, a gun? Introducing a gun. I know. But to, I guess to make sure they didn't try anything. Well, and, and you know, we've t- we talked about this a little bit last week. Ed was a very good talker. Mm-hmm. He was. And was High very, IQ. very charming. Yeah. And people were comfortable mm-hmm. talking with him. Yeah. People as long as you didn't know he was say, a serial killer or you didn't, you weren't threatened by the possibility of him doing that to you at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A fairly sociable character. Yeah. And he used that to his advantage. So they get to the spot. He tells Aku to climb into the back seat of the car, which she willingly does. And he climbs out of his side of the car and walks around the car to the passenger side, mm-hmm. only to realize that when Aiko got into the car, she locked the door and Ed left the keys in the ignition. Ha, no. He is totally screwed at this point. <laughs> yeah. Love it. But poor Aku, being the sweetheart that she was, unlocked the door. And let no, what? Yeah. Why? Because that's when you flip him the was bird and you drive away. I, listen, hindsight's twenty twenty. Right? I know, I know, and I'm not judging her. Yeah. I just wish she had of. I wish that was the end of the story. I wish I she too. like flew into town in his car. The cops who talked about this on the documentaries that I watched said of all of the murders that Ed Kemper committed, the most heartbreaking one was Akoku because her mother was alone in the world. All she had was her daughter. Oh. And you know what, Ed? I mean, he is a monster because mm-hmm. you just the the methods that you're talking about, and then the things that he's doing, and and it's not is it lost on you guys because it's not on me that the first time that Edmund Kemper has sex with another woman, it is her headless corpse. Yeah. Disgusting. Is that is that has that been lost mm-hmm. on anybody? No, no, not not here. So that is a terrible. I mean that that is why I believe he continued to want to go back and kill again because like you said, it was sexually motivated. Mm-hmm. He was not able to perform it in was, any other way. Exactly. It was half sexually motivated. And it was half hatred for his mother. Yeah. And he couldn't bring himself to kill his mother. So he, he projected his mother onto other people and killed them instead mm-hmm. and took out his anger and anguish on them <sighs> and their bodies. So Ed gets Aiko into the back of the car. He ties her up and he, tries to smother her by pinching her nostrils together and putting his huge, gigantic paw over her mouth. So he thinks he's done the job. He pulls her outside onto the ground beside the car and sexually assaults her dead body, only to have her wake up. <gasps> oh, my gosh. No. Uh, so he strangles her around the throat at that point and kills her. 
Ed then drives to a bar a few blocks away and goes inside and has a beer. At one point, coming outside of the car, uh, outside of the bar, to the back of the car, opening up the trunk, he said later, like a fisherman admiring his catch. Yeah, he's very, and when he talks about these things, when you see these interviews, he's, he talks about it like he's caught a fish. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's very just. They're things to him. Mm-hmm. They're dolls. Yes, they're, you they're remember not. from the last episode, he, he had this thing about his sister's dolls. He liked mm-hmm. to chop off their heads in their hands. Yeah. And uh, he felt like he was turning people into dolls that he yep. could play with. Yep. In a sense. So Ed disposes of Echo's body, but keeps her head for a few days. That was on a Thursday. On Saturday, Ed has to take a drive over to, uh, I think it's Santa Cruz, to visit with a couple of psychiatrists and have them interview him because he is trying to have his juvenile records expunged so that he can go out and have a successful life and be deemed a normal person. If nobody knows that he killed his grandparents when he was 15, it'll be a lot easier for him to get a job or a loan or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. So he goes to visit these two psychiatrists with Aiko's head in the trunk of his car. He wow. laughs about that later. I bet he did. Because both psychiatrists said- I bet they cleared him oh, completely. Yeah. This guy is not a threat to himself or anyone else. This is a good guy. He should guy. have his records expunged. Two months later, the paperwork goes through. Ed's records are expunged. <sighs> yeah. Uh, he eventually dumped uh, Aiko's head in a dried riverbed in Alameda County. He says. But it's never been found. No. Mm. Four months later, in January of 1973, Ed has a horrible argument with his mother, and he leaves the house, and he said in one interview, the first person I picked up that day was going to get their brains uh, brains blown out. He knew he was going to kill somebody (laughs) because of the argument that he had with his Mm -hmm. mother. He wanted to kill his mom, Mm -hmm. but instead I'm going to... Instead, he picked up 19-year-old Cynthia and Shawl. It was a rainy night. Ed said that it was really easy to get people in the car on a rainy night because who doesn't want to get in out of the rain? Mm -hmm. Windows are fogging up in the humidity, so it's hard to see in cars exactly who it is or if if somebody sees her get into his car, it's hard for them to recognize him or identify him later. So he's thinking of all these things. He's getting better at this as he goes Mm -hmm. along. Uh, Not a lot of detail about exactly what happened in the car except that he got her to whatever the location was that he'd chosen and asked her to get into the trunk. And as soon as she did and looked at him, he shot her between the eyes with his twenty-two pistol. And Ed's lasting memory of that encounter was that after he shot her and she dropped dead, her eyes were still open. That's what he remembered years later about Cynthia Shaw. It was also the first day that Kemper had on his new shorter cast so he could use his arm, his left arm, a little bit more freely than he could with the big L-shaped that kept his elbow immobile. So Mm -hmm. that was the first day they'd had on that cast. But when he took her body up to his mother's apartment this time, he got blood all over it, and he had to hide that with white shoe polish that he found at his mother's house. This is him explaining this years Mm -hmm. later. Yeah, He takes Shaw's body to... His mother's apartment hides her in a closet overnight, waits for his mom to go to work the next day, and then has sex with the corpse before dismembering it in the bathtub and throwing her body parts off of a cliff along the shoreline. He buried Cynthia Shaw's head in his mother's backyard. Good Lord. Was it ever found? Yes. That was the first. One of the many stories that he told after he turned himself in was where that 
head was located and you can see crime footage, photo of footage of the cops mm-hmm. retrieving that piece of evidence. It was at this point that Kemper's sister, Aylin, we mentioned her last week. Mm-hmm. She becomes suspicious of Ed. I mean, everybody in the family knows that Ed killed his grandparents. Mm-hmm. And Aylin knows that Ed used to like to chop the heads and hands off of of her dolls. That's never sat right with her, has yeah. it? And it's, it's a few weeks later when a hand that turns out to be Shaw's hand washes up 25 miles across the bay. It's taken it three or four weeks to wash mm-hmm. over that way with the tides. And when that story becomes known, Aylin walks over to Ed's bedroom and says, hey, do you have anything to do with these murders? And she said that Ed kind of chuckled and said, you know, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. No, of course not. But don't mention it to mom. That's a weird thing to say. I guess he just doesn't, I don't know. Maybe she wrote that off as, don't mention it to mom because then mom will be accusing me too. Yeah, blah, exactly. Blah, blah, I, think that's what, I think that's what he meant. Yeah. Or at least according yeah. to Aylin, that's what he meant. Yeah. If you mention it to her, she's just going to berate me about it. We'll get in an argument. We'll get in another argument. And, yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's in January of 73. And here we are one month later, February the 5th, 1973. And how old is Ed at this point? Ed is 23. Why is he still living with his mom? Uh, well, he, he can't work. He, he worked for the highway department, but he's on leave, I think, from the highway department because of mm-hmm. his broken arms. So he doesn't have a lot of money. Uh-huh. So it's cheaper for him to crash with mom. And he stays there for a little bit. He has a friend with, in Alameda with an apartment, and sometimes mm-hmm. he stays there. And you just think you would just think that she wouldn't want him there anymore as much as she I don't think she did. Argues with him yeah. and, and I mean that couldn't be pleasant to, for anybody. Right. She seems to just utterly despise him. Now this is according to Ed. Yeah. But she's still allowing him as a grown man to live in her home. Yeah. And that has always been strange to me. Same here. And it but makes who knows me, how that family dynamic works out. Well, it makes me question a little bit the severity of the of the relationship. I know that the sister has backed up some of the stuff. Yes. But it just kind of makes me question it yeah, a little me bit. Too. I'm anyways, not, I'm, anyways, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Um, so one month later in February of 73, Rosalind Thorpe is 23 years old and Alice Liu, that's a, a an Asian, L-I-U. She's, okay. she's Asian uh, in heritage. So she's 21 years old. They're both students at UC Santa Cruz. Rosalind was a regular hitchhiker with an extremely high IQ. She wasn't allowed to be the school Victorian at Carmel High in California because she was a female and at that time only males could be valedictorian. Really? Yeah, so fuck you, Carmel High School. (laughs) Fuck you, Carmel High School. That's right. Ooh, yeah, that's disgusting. Um, So Kemper got into, you know what, I uh, I may have said this wrong. Kemper got into a big argument with his mother this day. It wasn't in January before he picked up Cynthia Shaw. It was this day on February the 3rd when he got into a huge argument with his mother. Sorry, that's my fault. He may have got into an argument with his I'm mother. I'm sure he got into a lot. Did, they, but they, he mentioned this one. Okay, this is yeah. the one where he's like, someone's dying today. I'm going to kill somebody today. I'm mad. Okay. So we picked up Rosalind Thorpe first. And I forget exactly where they were headed, where she was headed. But that made it a heck of a lot easier for him to pick up Alice Lou a few minutes later because she's, her guard is down if she sees a couple in a car. Mm-hmm. Oh, and another thing, Ed has a parking sticker on the bumper of his car that his mother got for him so that he could come and pick her up after her job at UC Santa Cruz mm-hmm. in the administrative office. And the cops at this point are telling students, don't get in the car with anyone unless they have a parking sticker. 
because that means they're a university employee or a student. Right. You're safe. Right. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that last week, but, but it also, it was good to bring up again because Mm -hmm. it's, it's their guard is down even more. Their guard was down even more Mm -hmm. than, than normal. Yeah. And they have a nice conversation for a little while. Kemper's driving around slowly. Uh, Thorpe is in the front. Lou is in the back. And they're at the top of a hill. You can see the, the city lights. I guess it's Santa Cruz, the city lights you can see because famously Santa Cruz, it's a resort community, a, 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 a bedroom type community, a retirement community until they build UC Santa Cruz in 65. And then everything kind of changes. That brings all these college kids in. This is why Santa Cruz ends up being this hotbed of murder activity in the early seventies. But one of the things that, that it is, is it's very remote, just a few miles out of town. It's not hard to get up into the mountains and be in a very remote area and be able to have a fantastic view of the city and the Bay, but you're in the middle of nowhere. Mm. relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking at this Vista out the windshield of the car. And as they're looking away and their attention is somewhere else, Ed takes his 22 pistol, shoots Rosalind in the head and kills her instantly. At which point, of course, Alice Lou freaks out. Yes. Um, Ed describes the, he's, he's having to shoot over his shoulder into the back seat to try and hit Alice. And so he shoots her in the hands. He shoots her, Glancing blows off the side of her head. Eventually, he lands one right in the middle of her forehead, and that kills her as well. So he drove to his mother's house and decapitated both girls while they lay in the trunk of his car right there in the parking lot at about 11 p.m. Ed said, it's amazing what you can get away with. People just don't pay attention. Oh, my Lord. He's honestly not wrong, though. People don't. Can you, can you imagine being a neighbor? After all this comes out. When it comes out and realize, oh, that that Holy was a human crap. foot I saw. That, that wasn't a, a mannequin. That was a human being or, you know, whatever you do oh, it did to seem rationalize. Weird that he was out there in his mm-hmm. trunk, but yeah. I mean, not my business. And right. then people always go, or well, I mean, sometimes, well, he was kind of a weirdo. Mm-hmm. They yeah. either do that or they go, I can't believe it was the nicest boy. You know, you hear that all the time. One or the He's other. So nice. Right. Nicest kid. Yeah. So uh, this nice kid, Ed Kemper, takes uh, Alice Lou into his mother's apartment the next morning, sexually assaults her corpse, dismembers both bodies, and discards them hither and yon in the mountains around Santa Cruz. <sighs> Cynthia's younger sister, Wendy Thorpe, said in an interview that I read that after all of this happened, her high school classmates, Blamed Cynthia for her own death, saying simply, she had her thumb out. She got what she deserved. That's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. And Why that's, would you... that's one thing that made me think about what Kemper said years later, which was that he taught girls not to hit each other. Oh, you didn't, right. Kemper, you didn't yeah. teach anybody anything. Right. So now there's an official panic in Santa Cruz. This is, uh, th- there are three separate serial killers working the Santa Cruz area in February of 1973. Three different ones. And they know that there's more than one because the, the, the MO is different. Who are they? Uh, well, the guy that's going to get picked up a couple of days after this all happens, his name is Herbert Mullen, and they pin 10 of the 15 murders that they know about at the time on him. But they know that somebody else has committed these at least five other murders because of the the way the bodies are disposed of. It's just, it seems very different. Mm-hmm. Still, there's still nobody trying to figure out what a serial killer is just yet. Mm-hmm. But they, they're smart enough, these, these hometown cops, at least to know that 
they've, they've got more than one mm-hmm. out there working. And this is in Northern California. It's four years after the Zodiac killings, five years after the Zodiac killings. The Manson murders took place in August of 1969. And there's just a lot of weirdness in that area. It's still the hippie generation. It's just kids don't respect the cops. The cops don't care to look for the kids. It's just, it's the perfect incubator for all of these horrible things to happen. In fact, the front page of the February the 13th, 1973 edition of the Santa Cruz Sentinel, the big headline, crime spree soars, another murder. There were 13 murders in the previous six weeks in the Santa Cruz area. Oh my gosh. Two weeks before this story comes to an end, mm-hmm. Santa Cruz County Sheriff's deputies visit Kemper because back then, if you bought a pl- uh, uh, if you bought a pistol, a piece of pa- a piece of paperwork was filled out and sent to the local sheriff's department. Okay, and they had to make sure that it was okay for this person to purchase a firearm. Okay, and for some reason, whoever looked at that piece of paper figured out that Ed's juvenile records had been sealed, and they got a hold of them somehow and looked, or were able to read part of it, and. They say, wait a minute, this guy killed his grandparents when he was 15. Is it okay for him to purchase this 44 caliber handgun? Which he did not use in any of the murders. The murders were committed with a 22 caliber handgun. But they know about the 44, they don't know about the 22. So the sheriff's deputy goes out to talk to six foot nine, 280 pound Ed Kemper and confiscate his firearm until they can decide if a judge is going to let him keep it right. with the sealed records. Okay. That gets Ed very nervous. I bet. Because he, he's not sure if they've been staking out his house. What if they saw him doing some of these other acts that we know are illegal? I, if I'm going to commit the act that I really want to commit here, then I better do it pretty soon mm-hmm. because I may not be around to do it for very long. And over the Easter weekend of April 1973, Katie picks up the story. Okay. Yep, it's Good Friday, April 20th, 1973, and this is a month after his last, after the last murders he's committed. He comes home, and he has brought his mother an Easter lily, but he gets home, and she's not home. So, he's waiting for her to return. The longer it's taking her to get home from her night out, she's out and about. He is getting more and more agitated, more and more agitated. Hours go by. About midnight, he's finished a six-pack of beer, which, I mean, for a six-nine man, honestly, probably not, not a lot. Not yeah. a ton, but that's what's quoted. He finished a six-pack of beer. He's still waiting on her about after midnight or so. He falls asleep. He wakes back up. She's still not home. He falls. Dang, what is she doing? Yeah, she's She was partying. out partying it up. Wow. All right, Mom. So when he wakes up again, it's 4 a.m. He goes to look for her. She's home. She's home in bed reading a book. And she says to him, I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk now. And he's like, no, no, you you crash. We'll talk. And she's like, okay, well, we'll talk in the morning. So just very strange interaction. He, Cause he comes in her heated, I guess. And she's like, well, you want, so we're just going to be up talking now. And he's mm-hmm. like, turns into kind of a little boy again. And is like, no, you know, so, an hour goes by, and he's still, he's just stewing over this interaction with his mother, over her getting home late, and how she talked to him when he went to talk to her about it. So, 5 a.m. rolls around. He goes into a kitchen. He grabs a claw hammer and a knife. He goes into her room, and he just 
begins to cave in her skull. Oh my gosh. Just absolute carnage. And after the fact, he does what he does every other time and he cuts off her head. He thinks, he tells later that what's good for his victims is good for his mother. You mean everything that he's done to these other victims. Everything he does to his mother. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's why we have the disclaimer. He begins by taking her head and puts it on a shelf and he tells later that he just screamed at it for an hour. Till he was hoarse. He cut out her tongue and her vocal cords and he decided to throw those down the garbage disposal. But in kind of a funny manner they actually got hung up in the garbage disposal and flung back at him and he said it was pretty appropriate because that's kind of how she was in real life she always got the last word she so he was trying to get the last word and she comes back at him at the one garbage disposal yeah. one last time mm-hmm. oh my gosh I don't I don't know how I feel about it. do y'all know how you feel about that like I don't know how creepy I feel. as fuck yeah it gets yeah. worse that's, oh okay he undresses her headless body. No. Yeah. And then he has sex with both pieces of the body. The body and the head. Two psychiatrists said. Not a danger to himself or others. Go forth and prosper, young I man. I want to know who those two people were. I'll bet they moved. I don't after know. all this happened, I... I want their life. Something, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we want this quote in this podcast, but I'll say it and then we'll, we can decide if y'all okay. want me to keep it. All right, all right. He said that he, um, it all made sense because he came out of her vagina and in a rage, he went back in. Mm-hmm. And then he hit her body in a closet. So Ed is a well human being who is uh, mm-hmm. just able to be out amongst the world. Inexplicably. It should have taken down that entire hospital. Yeah. All of this. And they should have just closed up shop. Somebody should have cleaned house after all of this came to light. If I had been one of the doctors at that hospital and all this came out, I would have just picked up my pocketbook and went home forever. As you should have. And, and maybe yeah. that's what happened. I don't know. That, that, those details sort of begin to trail off. Oh, my gosh. There's not a lot of information about that that I can find. Okay, so Ed has Ed has shared with us his twisted oh, twisted well, mind. Hang on. He, oh, he's still sharing. Okay. Well, then he decides he's going to call his mother's best friend, Sarah Hallett. Why? He wants to lure her lure her over to the apartment. He needs he needs an alibi for his mother's disappearance and he figures if he can tell people, "Hey, mom and Sally have gone on vacation." That will explain his mother's disappearance, but she's got to go too to make it work. Okay, so I'm sure he talked her over there, right? Well, she doesn't answer. Oh, good. When he's calling her and she doesn't answer, he waits around all day. He finally reaches her around five o'clock that evening. And he tells her that he wants to have a he wants to take her and his mother out for dinner. It's gonna be nice. She dressed she's she agrees. She thinks it's a great idea. She dresses up. And she gets over to the house a couple of hours later. When she arrives, you know, his mother's obviously not there. So he tells her that his mother is running late. And she's like, well, I'm a, she starts heading for the couch. She's like, let's sit down. Her exact quote is, let's sit down. I'm dead. 
Oh dear. She's she's tired. She'd been out the night before, and he thinks, "Wow, she she have a premonition here." <laughs> is he taking that literal? Well, that, <laughs> he, this is all like his thinking, recounts later. So you know, that, this is. Or is he trying to make a a really terrible joke? I don't think so. Okay. But before she even makes it to the couch, he punches her in the stomach, spins her around so he she's not looking at him. Mm-hmm. He lifts her up off the ground and basically breaks her neck. Oh, my God. Then he wraps her head in a bag with a cord tied tightly around her neck and then decapitates her as well. And then he heads out to the bar. After he comes back from the bar, he goes to sleep in his mother's bed. The same bed that is blood-soaked from where he... From where he killed her. I mean, at this point, I would expect nothing less out yeah. of him. I mean, yeah, you know, Nothing surprises you as I'm, the story I'm, goes along. Yeah, I mean, wow. Just yeah. think of the sickest thing ever. As Scott mentioned, though, his motive for killing Sarah was just... He hoped that it would look random and it wouldn't lead the death of his mother back to him because he had no motive to kill Sarah. Mm-hmm. So they would look for someone who, you know, had a reason I, to kill them both. You know, I think Ed can say that. I, I think Ed is spiraling. Mm-hmm. I think we're, he I is. think we, well, we're beyond that. Yeah. I mean, that's an understatement. But I think once he finally kills, you know, he always claimed if I had just killed my mother first. Right. I would have never killed anyone else. And that's absolutely not true because he turns around and kills someone immediately after her. And he claims it's for the alibi well, in reason. his mind it was necessary and it may be necessary yeah. but he would have give if give Most it likely. give it some more months and he would have done it again well and katie may be about to tell this story but you're exactly right about ed's frame of mind after this happens because he panics he freaks mm-hmm. and katie's got no, it. you go ahead um well he is freaking out he loads up a bunch of weapons into the trunk of the car and he just starts driving east so he's driving he's panicking he doesn't know what to do. He says that he, he can't sleep. He's, uh, he's screaming. He's ba- uh, uh, banging on the wheel. As he's, just, he's in frantic mode. He doesn't know what to do. He's going to go out in a blaze of glory, right? That's his intention. That's his intention. Is to get pulled over by the cops somewhere and just shoot until yep. they kill him. Yep. He won't. Suicide by police force, I right. think is what they call yeah. it. So he gets to Pueblo, Colorado, and he's had enough. He's tired of it. He's just ready to stop running. He calls the Santa Cruz Police Department to turn himself in. And he knows these people who are answering the phone because the bar that Katie mentioned earlier is a bar called the Jury Room, which is right across the street from the Santa Cruz Courthouse. And he is a compatriot, a a drinking buddy of some of these police officers. They call him Big Ed. They think he's a, he's a pleasant annoyance. He buys beers sometimes. He sits in on conversations. He doesn't talk that much. He mostly listens. Ed says later it's because he wanted to know if there was anything new about the investigation into the co-ed killings so he could make sure and change his MO if he needed to. But he calls and he talks to a fellow named Andy at the Santa Cruz Police Department. He wants to speak to the lieutenant, but the lieutenant is not there. The lieutenant won't be in until 9 o'clock the next morning. Andy tells him to call back. Finally, Ed says in his second or third attempt to, to reach somebody and turn himself in. He calls, I mean, three times, yes. Yeah. But, but the, he gets hung up on. Right. They, they think, think he's, he's and that, they, don't, they don't believe him. I, I need to confess to some murders. Yeah, okay. Call us in the morning, you drunk. Click. Because he is frantic. I'm sure he sounds oh drunk Lord. on yeah. the phone. Because yeah. he hasn't slept. He's driven 1,500 miles with no sleep. No doze. He's been up for three days straight. He's just, he's had it. He's ready to turn himself in. So finally he says, Andy, it's Ed Kemper from the bar. 
So at that point, Andy addresses him as Ed. During their conversation, there's another cop inside the police station named Jim Connor, who Cynthia Shaw used to babysit for. Oh, Lord. By the way. And Connor hears this conversation. He says, Andy, who are you talking to? He says, it's Ed Kemper. He said, I know, Ed. Give me the phone. So it's not very long before Jim Connor is convinced that Ed is not bullshitting him. I'm in Pueblo, Colorado. Go ahead. But for a minute, he thinks, oh, it can't be Ed. He's drunk. Like, yeah. Like, they're like, not, not Ed. Not Ed. Not Big Ed. Yeah. Not our buddy Big Ed that buys us beers at the jury room sometimes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Wow. Turns out it was Big Ed after all. So they finally convince, Ed finally convinces them to send the cops. And at some point during the conversation with Officer Connor, Ed says, oh, the man's here. He's got a gun pointed on me. And the Pueblo Police Department has arrived. Mm-hmm. And they take Ed into uh, custody, lock him up. It takes the folks from Santa Cruz a day or so to get out there. They fly out. And the district attorney goes. The sheriff's department deputy that was there the day that Ed's forty-four revolver got confiscated goes because Ed knows Terry, I can forget his last name, Alufi. It's a weird Italian sounding name. Yeah. But he is the police officer, the sheriff's deputy who confiscated the weapon. So he knows where Ed lives. Ed lives in this neighborhood where the a lot of different houses have similar numbers and it's hard to find the location. The guy got lost that day looking for Ed. They had a conversation about it as the receipt for the confiscated weapon is being exchanged. So he knows that this officer, Ed knows that this officer knows where he lives. He said, tell him to go to my house, climb in the back door, you'll find my mother in one closet and her friend Sally in another closet. And sure enough, they do. So now they believe him. And they find a note. Yes. He has has apologized to this police force. He says, he says he's sorry for the mess. He says not sloppy plus incomplete, gents. Just lack of time. Got things to do. Three ex- three exclamation. <laughs> wow. Three exclamation points. God. Okay. Three exclamation. That's it. <laughs> Who's three lines with that? dots underneath them. <laughs> Got things to do. Approximately five fifteen a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible butcher. It was quick, asleep, no pain, the way I wanted it. That's the note he left for the cops. Mm. So they drive, they fly out to Pueblo. Mm-hmm. They, Ed has, he has exchanged his car for a rental car yes. somewhere between Santa Cruz and Pueblo, Colorado. Mm-hmm. It's a green Chevy Impala four-door. So they get into Ed's rented car, start driving back. Ed's talking the whole way. He's glad to finally be telling somebody. He's confessing up a storm. He's everything. telling it all to anyone who will listen. I think Ed loves telling the story because he gets to relive it every time. Like I, that's you may be, new, that may be part of the... He loves that. Yeah, that may be part of it. Mm-hmm. So they... they Two or three days later, they get back. One of the first things they do is they say, Ed, would you like to show us where some of these people, these body parts are buried? And that's the first time that they know that Aiko Ku is one of his victims because they find a piece of her arm that he has buried somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they can identify her from that somehow. So that's one of the ways that they find out about Aiko Ku. He also tells them about Cynthia Shaw's head, which is buried in his mother's backyard. They dig it up. There's file photos of uh, crime scene photos that you can see of that. Um, they found IDs of the other murdered co-eds in Ed's closet. Oh, on the way back, 
they make a stop and two like really good looking women walk by the car mm-hmm. and Ed just starts violently vomiting. And then he tells the police, the police officers think it's like they're he, like he's doing it to try to like maybe escape or get out. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, uh, this is what happens when I see beautiful women with their heads still on. Yeah. One of the most famous Ed Kemper quotes of them all is something very similar to what Katie just said. They asked him, uh, what would you do if, uh, what do you think when you see a beautiful girl? He, and he says, uh, one of the things I think is, well, that's a pretty girl. I'd really like to get to know her and take her out on a date. And the other thing that I think is, I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. Sounds about right. So Ed Kemper is, uh, Katie, you got any legal updates? Is Ed still with us? I think he's still with us, but he's had a stroke and he is not around very much anymore. But we've talked about this before with the, uh, the Mindhunter series on Netflix. Ed Kemper figures prominently into the fictionalized version of what happened. You can read John Douglas's book or uh, uh, is it Lassiter Wrestler? Robert Ressler is the other FBI profiler. When they were putting together the behavioral sciences unit back in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. Ed was one of the first serial killers that they spoke to at length because he was more than willing. Most of the stuff that I told you today that Katie told you today is firsthand interviews with Ed Kemper. I mean, that's that's interviews with Ed Kemper, the book that she just got that quote from. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of what we know about Ed's crimes, and he has no reason to, he may have embellished some of these things. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Over the years, there's a couple. One in one story, Akuku's head was not in the trunk of his car when he went to the psychiatrist meetings. In another, it was. Mm-hmm. So there is some mm-hmm. embellishment along the way. It's been a long time. This was '72. This was all, you know, 50 years ago now. Yeah, and you said he's recently had a stroke, and he's kind of he's uh, turned into a recluse. He doesn't really talk to anybody anymore. The latest thing that I found, and that was from last year, I think, or, or early this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to do just a brief rundown on his trial because there actually was one. It lasted three weeks. Okay. And he had an excellent attorney. Uh, He had the chief public attorney of Santa Cruz County, James Jackson, who was just said to be excellent at what he did. Mm -hmm. He was so good at the pretrial stuff before Kemper's trial that there were people who were genuinely afraid that he was going to get him off. Probably because to, he spent three days in that car telling the whole entire story without a lawyer present. I mean, that, that probably had of, something to do that with That was it. one of the things. Yeah. And he just, he was coming at everything, every motion. He was filing them. He was doing his job. He was giving the man a fair defense. He was doing an excellent job, yes. And people didn't like it. Mm-hmm. People didn't like it at all. I mean, his house caught fire the day before the uh, final statements were to be done in, at the hearing, which is said to have been an accidental fire. Who but, knows? But pretty suspicious. It could have been, same thing happened been arson. to yeah. what also. Manson's defense attorney during mm-hmm. his trial around the same time. People tend to to frown on that, and it's so hard to. You can see both sides. I mean, people yeah. just they get a very bad taste in their mouth well, when someone like does a great job. Edmund Kemper a, gets a great psycho. defense. We talked yeah. about this the very first time we ever did this podcast. It was the man who defended Judith Ann Neely yeah. over in Fort Payne, and he mm-hmm. became a pariah in his community. A very well respected attorney until mm-hmm. he became Judith Ann Neely's defense attorney, and then they mm-hmm. pretty much ran him out of town. But I mean, with this, with the deal with Edmund Kemper, you know, he's confessed everything. So it, what is the, what is Well, your... you tried to throw out the confession. Yes. And that then, was, that was priority number one for this attorney. And then when that fails, he turns into, you know, he plea, he's pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. Obviously. 
But there is. But Ed understands right from wrong, and that's the legal definition of insanity. We're not talking about insanity. Is not that's a legal term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the not the, a medical term. The, no, the, right. The M. Naughton rule, which is under which a defendant can only be found guilty uh, or not guilty by reason of insanity is if it's crystal clear beyond any doubt that they had no idea what they were doing was wrong while they were Mm -hmm. doing it. While they were committing the crime. Mm -hmm. And there's all these files on Ed, state files showing that he is cured, normal, healed, and zero threat to society. We've talked about that a million Mm -hmm. times. State had multiple psychiatrists testify that he was, you know, fine. There's all this pre-planning, stalking, killing by various means, like, you know. In a way that kind of worked against Ed. Yes. The fact that he had been declared insane when he was a child and been treated and cured sunk his defense attempts to claim insanity. Yes. Yeah. Right. Which is it? <clears throat> yeah, he, which is it? And one of the more interesting things that happened during the trial, he keeps a pretty composed state during the trial, except he makes eye contact with a woman in the galley and she makes a, like a cutthroat motion at him. He mm-hmm. loses his mind. Oh, oh. Yeah. I forgot about that. What does he do? He just starts flipping out and he's saying, she needs to be out of here. I can't do this. Like just. Someone planted her. Maybe. I bet. Well, she was gone before anybody could get to her. She, mm-hmm. she, she went there with that purpose yeah. to set him off. Someone got her to do that. Maybe, maybe she was a family member. One of the she could have been, or you know, the prosecutor may have gotten yeah. real brilliant. Yeah, just in case. I was like, sit out there in the audience and do this, and yeah. let's just see what what Ed does. And, and there you go. The same the same uh, tactic in the Wayne Williams trial. Yeah. Try to get the mm-hmm. defendant to panic mm-hmm. and and show his true side, show, mm-hmm. show his true self. So Any case, maybe. there he is. Yeah. And so Ed is uh, somewhere, guys. I, I He's hate. In Vacaville. I ha- he's where he is in Vacaville State Prison in California, as far as I know, and has been there since not long after he was sent off to jail. And that's yeah. that's that's one of their maximum security facilities. He had a few uh, sad failed suicide attempts, which weren't real suicide attempts. I mean, he took paper clips and pin caps and mm-hmm. cut his wrists with them, and had to get a few stitches. And they said, "Ed, you're a prolific killer. You know, slit in the throat's the best way to kill somebody." And he's mm-hmm. like, "I wanted to bleed out slowly." Mm-hmm. Yeah couple of uh, parole hearings through the years, they didn't go well. No, I'm no. sure. His sister testified and said that, you know, she thought he, she wanted to testify to the fact that he'd been insane his whole life because of the doll beheadings and everything. Yeah. But mm-hmm. that didn't go well either. So, yeah. He gets like eight consecutive life sentences. And the only thing he has to say about it is he's mad because Mullen only got two Herbert Mullins. Yeah, that was the other serial killer in the Santa Cruz area at the same time. He was arrested on February the 13th, 1973, so Ed's two months later. And they did, at at one point, shared uh, the same facility. They moved Herbert to give Ed his cell when he first got arrested. Herbert had the cool cell in the jail for crazed serial killers until Ed got there, and they kicked Herbie down the street, or down the the hallway, and uh, that created some animosity that lasted for quite a while between the two of them until they were permanently separated. But yeah, Ed was mad because he got eight charges, and he got convicted on eight charges, and Mullins only did only got convicted on two. He said that Mullins was just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody for no good reason. Mm-hmm. No good reason. That's huh? what he said. That's mm-hmm. what he said. Good Lord. Yeah. Ed. Come on. But you know what? And I hate to say this, and I hate to be like this, but it I, it doesn't hurt my feelings that Ed is sort of stuck in his own crazed mind now. He's had a stroke, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah. 
Uh, he's left. He's trapped in all. There. Yes, in that, in that mind. With it, nothing it to do except think about. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Yeah, me either. I hate to be that way, but I, I mean, don't. You know, screw him because you know he wanted to be tortured to death. He asked the judge for that. Remember, he had the thing where he like played pretend. When on. he was a kid, he played uh, electric chair in gas chamber as a child. Yeah, but yeah. Right when this had happened is when the Supreme Court had outlawed uh, the death penalty. The death penalty, yeah. and so yeah. any so he's just any it's just going to be. Well, yeah. I mean, this is that's kind of a torture. It was because mm-hmm. he didn't get yeah to be yeah didn't get what he wanted that one last. I time. I mean, there's different ways of torturing you. You, Ed, you just don't get to choose it. Yeah, sorry. So, <clears> so go. that's uh, that's the story of the co-ed killer of Edmund Kemper. How about that? Now, and and go go watch Mindhunter season one. Yeah, but it is an adult show. Do not. It's Very not much. for. It's not for. Any, I would say, would you say 18 plus? Uh, I would say listen to our disclaimer before you turn on Netflix and fire up Mindhunter. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, so um, with that, guys, you did a great job. Thank you so much. I learned some new things. I've, I've, did you learn anything? I, I did. Awesome. I did. I, I've, Katie, we did I've our job. I studied Ed Kemper before in my schooling. Okay. And I had abnormal psych. And of course, you talk about Ed Kemper and Ted Bundy and all, all of those, okay. you know, cliche serial killers. But I did learn some new things today. And thank you so much. And I wanted to, I want to say, um, I spoke with my dad recently and dad said, you know, you guys will do a case that I know about. And I go into it thinking, well, they don't have anything, you know, new that they, that Bullshit. I'm going to learn. We don't half-ass this. We whole-ass it. But I'm telling you, he says, I learn something new about it every time, even with OJ and, you know, yeah. some of the more That's well the fun known. part of this job is to dig out those little nuggets that yeah. you forgot about or maybe never knew. And I always learn something when we yeah, do this. Yeah. So, so thanks for those kind words, dad. And, and so that Keep was, listening. I just want to, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. All right, so uh, we're going to remember to give us a five-star review and mm-hmm. leave your name, not 112064. No, you can leave 112-whatever-BBA. Okay. I love it. That's All right, fine. fine. Do it that way. You don't want to admit to people that you listen to this podcast. That's fine with <laughs> us. We're okay. with us. We're okay with that. Go to the website. Check us out online. That will get you right to the place where you can listen to our next podcast. We're not going to tell you what it is, but we already know Kelly gets mad when I tell anybody. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, are we done? We're done. Is that it? That's Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. It was awesome. Good night, everybody. <laughs>